We come this evening to the end of the beginning. When I preached this sermon to my own congregation in Virginia Beach, I reminded them as we came to the end of the book of Genesis after a sermon series that lasted about three and a half years, that in my first sermon on Genesis, Genesis 1, I emphasized the foundational nature of this book. The foundational nature of this book. It's the book of beginnings. Book of Genesis is the starting point for everything that we know about God, for everything that we know about ourselves, for everything that we know about our fallen and sinful condition, for everything that we know about God's covenantal saving purposes throughout history, and ultimately everything that we know about His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think it's an appropriate thing for us to do at the end of this year to consider this last chapter of the book of Genesis. In that first sermon on the book of Genesis, I strongly emphasized the historical character of the book, the historical character of the book. And I did that because I knew that it's precisely at this point that the greatest attack in our day has come. Not only outside the visible church, but even within the visible church and even within those churches that call themselves, that identify themselves, that think of themselves as theologically orthodox and confessionally reformed. And yes, even orthodox Presbyterian. It's precisely at this point that the greatest attack comes. We deceive ourselves if we think that we are immune to the spiritually infectious diseases of our culture and our times. The book of Genesis is not only a true and accurate historical record, it's the only historical record that gives us the proper perspective, a God's eye perspective, you might say, for understanding all other history and all other reality. And so what I said to my own congregation in Virginia Beach over three years ago is also true here tonight in Lynchburg. You and I can't understand anything that has ever happened. We can't understand anything that is happening in the world right now today. We can't understand anything that is happening in our own lives. And we certainly can't understand anything else in the rest of the Bible unless we understand what God is saying to us here in this first and foundational and most fundamental book. But the reverse is also true. If we do understand this book, if we do have a grasp of its fundamental and foundational themes, then we have what we need to put all of life and even, brothers and sisters and children, even death itself, into proper perspective. A good thing to be thinking of at the end of a year and at the beginning of a new year. And what we want to see this evening as we consider these last verses in the book of Genesis, and as we see how the book of Genesis ends in death, how the book ends from a human and an earthly perspective in the loss of all hope, 
We want to see how this book ends in death in order to teach us that death is not the end. Let's consider that as we consider two points this evening. First, living by faith, and second, dying in hope. Living by faith, dying in hope. Let's look first at our first point, living by faith. The last verses of the book of Genesis describe for us the life and death of the man who is arguably the most prominent human personality in the whole book of Genesis. It's true, of course, that Abraham is the central figure of the book of Genesis, the central human figure. We don't want to take anything away from Abraham. It's in Abraham that you and I are able to be called the children of God. It's in Abraham and Abraham's seed, capital S, that the whole world has been blessed. But there's something about the life of Joseph that serves as a bridge for us to the rest of the Bible. It's a bridge for us to the rest of the Bible. And it sets the stage for the fulfillment of all the promises of God. There's something about the life of Joseph that beautifully and with great theological richness and profundity pictures the sinless life and humiliation and exaltation and present mediatorial priestly and kingly reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps no other figure in the Bible gives us such a picture of our Savior than the figure of Joseph, the man who suffered for the people of God, but whom God was with, and through whom God blessed not only Israel, but also the whole world. And so it might surprise us that this is how the book of Genesis ends. Doesn't it surprise you that this is how the first book of the Bible ends, the book that began with creation, now ends in death and with the death of Joseph might surprise us that even as the life of Joseph is sketched out for us in summary form here in verses 22 to 23 that the summary is so brief and so bare we might expect much more to be said of such a a great man one of the greatest men in the history of Egypt one of the greatest men in the history of the world for that matter And yet, his epitaph, his epitaph is simply this. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt. He lived 110 years and he lived to see not only his children, but his children's children. Why is this all that is said of Joseph, the man who, who like Seth, called upon the name of the Lord who like Enoch walked with God, who like Noah found grace in the sight of his God, who like Abraham was called to live by faith and not by sight, and who like Isaac walked in the fear of the Lord, and who like Jacob was afflicted and lived apart from and outside of that special place of God's presence that God had promised to his people, yet nevertheless had the promise that God was with him and for him and would be his God even outside of the promised land and even in the dungeon of Pharaoh. Why is this all that we read of this great man? It's said of John Calvin that he was buried in an unmarked grave Because he wanted the personality of John Calvin to be forgotten. 
to be forgotten so that God alone might receive all glory and so that the thoughts and affections of men might be directed to him and not to the memory of a mere man. And you see, that is the practical outworking of the theology and the life and the ministry of a man like John Calvin who pointed to God alone and not to himself. That theology could be summarized in these words, I must decrease so that my God and my Savior, Jesus Christ, might increase and so that He alone might be magnified and exalted above all earthly powers and personalities. And it's this mindset that God always sets before His people in His Word. God always sets this mindset before His people in His Word. It's this mindset that God always wants His people to be cultivating in their own hearts and lives. Consider the great contrast that Scripture sets before us between the sons of Cain and the sons of Seth in the book of Genesis. Have you ever thought about it? What was the great concern of the sons and daughters of Cain? It was this present world with its distractions, with its cares and concerns, with its passions and its lusts. The world that the Apostle John says is not of the Father and is passing away with the lusts thereof. The sons of Cain set their hearts on things that are not evil in themselves. The progress of the human condition through art and agriculture, through science and technology, through craftsmanship, And where would all that advancement and all that achievement ultimately lead? It would ultimately lead to the flood. To the universal judgment of God upon all men because neither the love of God nor the fear of God was in their hearts, but rather every inclination and intent of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And dear brothers and sisters, that is where you and I end up if we heed the world's counsel to follow our own hearts. But notice what Scripture tells us is the one great difference between the sons of men and the sons of God. Do you know how the life of Seth is summarized for us so simply and yet so memorably and so movingly in Genesis chapter 4? Do you remember, children? Do you remember? And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. That's worship, you see. That's worship. And there we see the great central priority of our lives set before us. It's not art and agriculture, science and technology and advancement in this world. It's the worship of God. You see what the Word of God is teaching us? There is a great contrast and a great conflict between the children of this world and the children of heaven. And God is the author of both the contrast and the conflict. That great 
mother promise of the Bible, that foundational promise on which all the other promises rest, is written in the indelible ink of the faithfulness of God. And I, I, God, will put enmity, hatred between you and the serpent and the woman and between your seed and her seed, capital S. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, Genesis 3.15. And so as we hear the summary of the life of Joseph, what is it that we hear? We hear of a man, though he had risen to the highest place of power and prominence and prestige this world could offer at that time. And though we hear of a man who is not only great in the secular world, but also great in the church, Nevertheless, here's how Moses summarizes his life for us. And you see, Moses too will have a very short summary of his life at the end of the Pentateuch. He was a man who lived long in this world, so long that he saw even his great-grandchildren. In other words, in the language of Psalm 128, he was a blessed man. He was a blessed man, a man who feared the Lord. This is what you and I need to know about Joseph. This is the main thing that we need to know about Joseph. He was a man who feared God and who walked in his ways. A man who was so blessed by God that God sets him before us here at the end of Genesis as the last in a line of godly men. That line is going to continue. But here it is at the end of the book. Joseph and his death. And you see here, there's something that might be easy for us to miss in this simple and succinct account of Joseph's life. God has used this man to work all things together for the good of his people. God afflicted Joseph. God afflicted Joseph. So that Joseph's brothers and so that their descendants might live and be blessed and might learn more and more to call upon the name of the Lord. But there's something else here. Do you know what it is? Joseph is not the central figure of the book of Genesis. If you had listened to my sermon series, throughout the series, you would have heard me remind the congregation again and again and again, these figures that God is putting before us, they are not the central figure of the book Abraham's not the central figure of the book. God is the central figure of the book, and of the whole Bible for that matter. But God is working out His purposes in history through men, through weak and anxious and fearful and sinful men. Those are the portraits that we see scattered through the book of Genesis. And now we have set before us, despite all the efforts of men and of devils to thwart the plan and the purpose of God and the salvation of His elect, we have something that is impossible for men, but something quite easy and simple for the sovereign and triune God. Joseph's dream has come full circle. Do you remember the dream? Your brother's And your father and your mother will bow down to you like the stars and like the moon. The dream has come full circle now. 
Joseph, at the end of the book of Genesis, the least likely of the sons of Jacob, now stands at the head of the family. This is impossible for man. God has worked in the hearts of his brothers, the brothers that cast him into a pit. A family that had been divided by sin and jealousy and unbelief is now united around the one who was wounded and who suffered and who has, by the grace of God, reconciled sinners to their God. I can tell you as a pastor, so often working together with families where there's division and discord in the family, how humanly impossible it is to bring reconciliation. You see, God has done this. God has done this. A family that had been divided by sin and jealousy and unbelief is now united around the very one who was wounded and who suffered and who has, by the grace of God, reconciled sinners to their God. And it's in this that we see a picture of what God is going to do for His people in His Son. He's going to bring reconciliation. Reconciliation between God and man. And reconciliation between man and man. And it's in this that we see a picture of what God is going to ultimately do through Jesus Joseph is nobody. Joseph is nothing but the greater Joseph will unite the divided tribes of the nation of Israel through his death and resurrection and his ascension to God's right hand. And yet even that is not enough. God and his son will reconcile the whole world to himself, Jew and Gentile not imputing their trespasses to them, but instead will make him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And this is why the author of the book of Hebrews, when he mentions Joseph, he has just one thing to say of Joseph's faith. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Hebrews 11.22. That brings us to our second point tonight. Dying in Christ. You may know that the first five books of the Bible are often referred to as the Pentateuch. They've always been in the Hebrew mind considered to be a single literary unit, really one structure, one single unit. They have a single author, Moses, and their purpose, those five books, is to reveal to the nation of Israel as it waits upon the Lord in the wilderness that God is with them, just as He was with Joseph. God is with them and will keep all His promises to them and will make them a great nation in them and will bless all the nations of the earth. But if you're an Israelite in the days of Moses, you know how the Pentateuch ends, don't you? It ends much as the book of Genesis ends. It ends with the book of Deuteronomy and the death of Moses. 
God has not fulfilled his promise. God has not led his people into the land of promise. God has not delivered Israel. God has not made them great. And what a temptation it would have been to conclude that God had been slack concerning his promise as some count slackness. The book of Genesis ends with the death of the very one that God seems to have raised up to deliver his people. Have you ever thought that? Abraham died and was gathered to his people in the land of promise. Isaac died and was gathered to his people in the land of promise. Jacob died and was gathered to his people and buried in the land of promise. But Joseph dies. As we read in verse 26, they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The place of death. The place of idolatry. What are God's people to make of this? This is the only place in the book of Genesis where we ever read that a faithful man of God is not buried. It's the only place in the whole book where we see this. And you see, if we only had verse 26, there might be reason for doubt or concern. But the last verse of the book of Genesis tells us something that you and I need to know. It tells us that the hopes of God's people are not to rest in Joseph or any other mere man. It tells us that the story of redemption is not yet complete. And it reminds us that the book of Genesis is but the book of beginnings. The story of God's faithfulness and of his purposes toward his people have only just begun. And it's precisely this that Joseph wants to communicate with his dying words. You see, he believes that God's purposes have only just begun for his people. You see, Joseph wants to communicate with his dying words that there is yet hope for Israel. And it's precisely this that he's doing. He He's looking beyond what he can see with his own natural eyes. He's looking beyond his own death to the hope that is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's looking through a glass dimly, but he's looking ahead. And the comfort that he offers to his brothers and to his children and to his grandchildren is the same comfort that you and I have right now as we consider the pressing and urgent reality that we and our children also will one day die. Unless we're alive when Jesus comes. Do you think much of the moment of your own death? It's good at the end of a year to think about it and to give thanks to God for the life that He's given to you over the past 364 days and to look ahead and to say to yourself perhaps God will be gracious to me and I will spend this coming year together with my family and perhaps I will go on to be with Him and which of these two I don't know which to prefer 
Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Do you think much of the moment of your own death? Do you think of what you will say to your own children and grandchildren when that day comes? Should God grant you time to say anything to them at all? Or may I put it this way, in the way the Heidelberg Catechism so gently and beautifully puts it, what is your, your only comfort in life and in death? Do you spend enough time thinking about your answer to this question? Do you spend any time thinking about it? Will you spend any time thinking about it in the coming year? But could it be that the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism knew exactly what they were doing when they made it the very first question that every child should consider and memorize and learn? My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Are those words... Perhaps not those exact words, but is that thought impressed deeply upon your very soul? Can you go to the grave, even if you were to go this very night? Could you go with those words or something like that upon your heart and upon your lips? Is this your only hope and comfort this evening? Children, what are you hoping for? What are you putting your trust in? Is it something that is of this world and of this life? If so, your hope will perish with you when you go to the grave. If your hope is in something in this life only, then your hope will perish forever with you when you go to the grave. But listen to the words of a dying man as he bursts forth with expectation and hope, not only for himself, not only for his children and his grandchildren of the flesh, but also for you and me. Look with me at Joseph's words here in verse 24. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob Joseph is going the way of all the earth, but with his dying breath and with his dying words, he wants to impress upon those that he loves that God has not changed and that God is faithful and that God can be trusted in all circumstances and even in the valley of the shadow of death to do what he has promised to do. You and I have that promise sealed and certified in the shed blood of our living Lord Jesus Christ. Children, you have that promise in baptism. The waters of baptism were poured out upon you. To all who are baptized, the promise is that if you believe, the things that are signified in that outpoured water which signifies the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and all the blessings purchased by Christ, that those are yours, not only for this life, but for the life of the world to come. But what did Joseph have? We have baptism. 
We have the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What did Joseph have, brothers and sisters? We don't read that God appeared to Joseph personally as he had to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. We don't read that Joseph ever saw or communed with God face to face. He had a dream, yes. But we don't read that he ever saw God. What did Joseph have? Joseph had the bare promise of God which had been passed down to him through Abraham to Isaac to his father Jacob. And you see, Joseph pictures for you and for me the mature life of faith. Not the childish life of faith. It's pictured in the Old Covenant. But the mature life of faith of the New Covenant. Joseph pictures that mature life of faith that faith that is looking primarily not to the types and the shadows of the Old Testament, but to Christ, the one who is pictured in all of those types and shadows. The mature yet childlike faith of those who take hold of Christ as He speaks to us in His Word and taking hold of Christ who believe not because we have seen or felt or sensed with our physical senses, but rather as those who have simply heard and believed and rested by faith on the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's the kind of faith that Joseph had. And that's the kind of faith that by the Holy Spirit we are called to have in the new covenant. Joseph comforts the hearts of those gathered around his deathbed with the same words that have comforted him in all of his afflictions of soul and of flesh. Verse 24 again, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and will bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in these words, these words, I will visit you, are contained the whole sum and substance of the theology of the book of Genesis, not only of the book of Genesis, but of the whole Pentateuch, and not only of the Pentateuch, but also of the whole Bible. It's really another way of saying, I will bless you. I will be a God to you. I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you no matter what. And you see, if you were an Israelite hearing these words as they were read by Moses to the people after the Exodus, you would have been able to look and you would have been able to see with your own eyes that cloud, uh, that pillar of cloud by day and that pillar of fire by night. You would have been able to see the tabernacle. You would have been able to see the sacrifices and the priests and the worship of a people who had once been slaves but who had been redeemed by the strong arm and the mighty hand of God brought out of Egypt between two great walls of water on solid and dry land. And then you would have seen that water come down on the chariots of Pharaoh. You would have seen all that. And you would have known that God had visited His people. And yet, this was but a shadow of what God would do for His people in Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, God has visited us in His Son. God has visited us 
in His Son. God has united our humanity to Himself in the person of His Son and has taken on Himself the infirmities and the sins of His people and has visited us not in judgment as we deserve, but has visited us in mercy and in grace by pouring out the wrath and condemnation that you and I deserved on His own sinless Son. God has visited us. And do you know what He has done? In Christ, He has brought us out of our bondage to sin and to the devil and to this world. He has visited us in His Son. And He visits us personally. And as as the church as a whole, He visits us by His Spirit. He pours out His Spirit upon us again and again, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, especially in the worship of His people. He has visited us, and He continues to visit us. He visits us in the preaching of the Word. And He visits us at the administration of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. God visits His people. You remember what the Lord said to His disciples? Yes, I'm going away. But I'm coming again. I will come again. But before I come again in the flesh, I will come to you. My Father and I will come to you and we will dwell in you and with you. We will make our home with you. God has visited us in His Son. God has visited us by His Spirit. And in Christ, He has brought us into the powers of the life of the world to come, the powers of the age to come. He has visited us in His Son, and He visits us personally and corporately in the church. He visits us to comfort us with the comfort that is the person and work of His Son, the only comfort for sinners in life or in death, but a comfort that is perfect and sufficient to assure us that if we are His in this life, we will be His in the life of the world to come. Do you have that hope? Is that your assurance? You can take hold of that by faith, even this very evening. There's one last thing for us to consider as we come to the end of the book of beginnings. It's the charge that Joseph gives to his brothers according to the flesh and his brothers in Christ. And what does he say? He says, God will surely visit you. Joseph is so sure of this that he says it a second time. And when you do that in the Hebrew language, You're saying that this is so certain that there is no room for doubt and there is no need for fear. There's no room for doubt and there's no need for fear. And Joseph goes on, because God will visit you and I'm so certain of this, I charge you, carry my bones up with you when you go. 400 years from now. Joseph dies with these words on his lips and his body is placed in a sarcophagus in Egypt. And we read nothing at all of any elaborate ceremonies in honor of him, like the ceremony for his father Jacob, 
We read nothing more of Joseph until we read this in the book of Exodus, Exodus 13, 19. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you and shall carry up my bones from here with you. Brothers and sisters, the book of Genesis doesn't tell us the whole story. It's only the beginning of the story. It simply invites us to keep reading, to keep listening, to keep believing, to keep trusting, to keep hoping, not in Joseph, not in Moses, not in Abraham, but in a far greater Joseph, a far greater Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you resting in Him and in the hope and the comfort that are in Him alone this evening? Are you resting in Him? Truly resting? How will you know if you're resting in Him? You'll know that you're resting in Him if you have that peace that passes all understanding even in the midst of the deepest distress and the deepest affliction. That's how you'll know. Are you resting in Him? It's only Christ who puts your life and my life into its proper perspective. It's only Christ who offers you a hope that transcends the grave. A hope that your own bones will not be forgotten by God, but will be raised up and reunited with your soul in the great day of visitation to come. Do you look forward to that day? Do you long for that day? Do you dream about that day? The day on which the dead in Christ will rise first when those of us who are alive still shall hear the sound of the trumpet and of the archangel and shall be instantly changed and shall be caught up to be with our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, to reign with Him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. What could there be in this life that could discourage you so much that you would take your eyes off of that hope. That hope is so great, brothers and sisters. In that same day, there will be another visitation. A visitation of judgment. A visitation of wrath and destruction from the Lord. And you and I and our children deserve only that visitation. That's the visitation that we deserve. You and I deserve only that eternal destruction and fire and torment. But the God who in the beginning made the heavens and the earth is also the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Joseph, who visits sinners in condescending covenant love and who promises to us and to our children to be our God and to make us a people who will be everlastingly pleasing to Him through the salvation that is in His Son. To God alone be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. O gracious God and Father, we pray that You would forgive us for having such low thoughts of You. We pray that You would forgive us for forgetting 
that you have promised to be our God, to never leave us nor forsake us, to visit us in mercy and not in judgment, and ultimately to bring us out of this world of sin and bondage and death and into the promised land of the life of the world to come. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us day by day and Lord's day after Lord's day to rest ourselves in that hope because that hope is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. We pray in His name. Amen. One, 596. Sorry. Sorry, I lost my bulletin for some reason. Okay. 596, please stand and sing.